Uh, let's start with Acts chapter 14, just to get ourselves into the word. Um, I'll have verses 6 through 18 on the screen, but I'm going to read starting in verse 1. Good to see you, Richard. Good to see you. All right, so Acts chapter 14. Can everybody hear me okay in Zoom? Yes, sir. All right. Yes. Acts 14, these are God's words. And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews, and so spake that a great multitude both of the Jews and also of the Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. Long time, therefore, abode they speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of his grace and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, and part held with the Jews, and part with the apostles. And when there was an assault made both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them, they were aware of it and fled unto Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and unto the region that lieth round about. And there they preached the gospel. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who never had walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lycaonia, that gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas, Jupiter, and Paul Mercurius, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people, which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you. And preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, scarce restrained they the people that they had not done sacrifice unto them. Amen. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Hey, good to see you. Um, so here, uh, one of the, this is a, an interesting text in many ways. We've actually talked about it before, but we find here the a work of the true God through men, right? Through Barnabas and Paul. And what does the corrupt man do when this man is is healed? Does he fall down before the living God? No, he starts to worship fallen men as gods. You know, this is what uh, is the idolatry in our hearts. Uh, The apostle Paul, right, then he goes and he starts to preach to them not to do these things, right? He says in verse 15, sirs, why do you these things? We also are men of like passions unto you and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. 
And then he, he goes and he uses natural revelation in verse 17. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, scarce restrained they the people and so on. You know, so what's interesting here, right, is that uh, Paul points them to natural revelation. And yet that natural revelation is not sufficient for them to know the true God, right? What he has to do is he has to inform them that this is what natural revelation means, right? Well, when you see these things, right, that uh, you have all these good things from God and he fills your heart with thank thankfulness, you actually need to know who it is that has done these things. And instead, what do they do? They create gods like themselves, right? They literally worship men who are just like themselves, Barnabas and Paul. Um, their vanity does not allow them to have a God who is holy, majestic, one that requires us to serve him with knowledge of his divine will. And so the divine will has to be proclaimed through the word of God, which is what Paul and Barnabas do. Now, I'm not going to belabor that point. Um, Calvin's going to make those points much better. But the application here, I think, is, is interesting. And it's something that Calvin's going to lead us to, um, which is one, just as the apostle says here, we must always look to turn from vanities unto the living God. And the only way to do that, of course, is to turn to the Holy Scripture, right? Uh, our natural sense of God must lead him, uh, lead us to holy revelation, the Bible, his word. Uh, in two areas, especially, which we'll consider tonight, which is how to be saved, first of all, and second, how to serve him. Uh, in both of those two things, right, you need to have um, not just natural revelation, but special revelation. Um, our inner sense of God, right, which is what Paul draws out here. We were talking about the apologetic method, but he draws on uh, this natural sense of God that all men have in order to point them to God. Um, he doesn't say blithely by what standard, right? Uh, he actually points them to things that they know with um, a sense of inner light towards God. But there was an application here out of um, uh, Calvin's own commentary, which I thought was really, really helpful. Um, and that's what I'll, I'll leave this devotional exercise with, which is when the men of uh, Lycaonia see unwanted power in the cripple that was healed. They persuade themselves that it is a work of God. This is all well, but it was evil done in that they forged to themselves false gods in Paul and Barnabas, according to the old wanted error. For what is the cause that they prefer Barnabas before Paul? Save only because they followed the childish surmise or fiction concerning Mercury, the interpreter of the gods in which they had been nourished. By which example we are taught what a mischief it is to be accustomed and acquainted with errors in youth, which can so hardly be rooted out of the mind that even through the works of God, whereby they ought to have been redressed, they wax more hard. This is really, I think, a wonderful application that even as Christians, we are to test all things against the word of God, right? We inherit things from our upbringing that is idolatrous. And that's a keen observation that Calvin makes. Um, this is why reformation is often very difficult, right? Um, we have to be ready to empty ourselves of whatever notions of God that we have inherited by tradition or our own sort of fevered imagination. And we are to think God's thoughts after himself. Well, with that, then, um, why don't we pray and ask the Lord to bless the remainder of our time.
Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have uh, condescended to reveal yourself to us. Otherwise, uh, we in this room would be serving gods of our own making. And so, Father, as we come now to this time of study, uh, oh Lord, we pray that you would fill our, our hearts with the Holy Ghost, that we would not receive the words of Calvin just because he is a father in the faith, but we would test all things against the Holy Scriptures to see if these things are so. And so, Father, as we come now to study, uh, we pray that you would not cause us to be idolatrous men and women. Uh, we are, can fall into the same idolatry that uh, we saw in the text where we fall down and bow down before John Calvin. Uh, and he would be like Paul and Barnabas pointing us to the living God. So point us to the living God in all these things. And as far as we study the words of Calvin, help us uh, see the word of God underneath it all and point us to the Lord Jesus Christ above all, in whose name we pray. Amen. So we're just going to simply try to cover all four sections, God willing. Um, there's a lot here. Uh, these chapters are getting more dense, and we're going to find it very hard to finish any of them in one sitting. But uh, I have material here for four sections. Uh, we may stop before that, depending on how things go. Um, first, I thought I'd just open it up to the sort of floor. Uh, did you have any thoughts on this fourth chapter that you uh, found were compelling or challenging or uh, just things that jumped out at you um, in your reading of it? I, I, I've seen a lot of uh, like Romans 1 about exchanging the truth um, and reading it. April and I read it a little bit before. And so we saw a lot of that about um, just the vain um worship that man gives because they can't comprehend the things of the spirit so a little bit of corinthians a little bit of romans yeah very good yeah a lot of biblical thought there and romans one and two especially i thought it was really good how he builds basically the first three points uh and most of the fourth point too on that uh essentially uh that vain superstitious mm. worship uh, no matter how zealous it is, uh, account amounts to nothing. You might yeah. be worshiping idols. Yeah. Pretty much what uh, uh, Calvin mm -hmm. says is a matter at this point, if you have one God or many gods because you're worshiping in vain. Yeah. Uh, and I think like the last sentence <clears throat> in point three pretty much like summarizes the entire chapter just in saying like no religion is genuine that is not in accordance with truth. Mm -hmm. And of course we know uh, from John uh, 4.24, yeah. you know, we worship God spirit. in spirit and in truth. So without the truth of who God is, uh, no matter if we have everything else right, we don't know Christ, we don't know the Father, and that's just what Christianity is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very good. Uh, I thought that was really good. I was just built on that. Okay. Anything else? All right. Well, we'll continue on, and I'm sure you'll have more thoughts. Feel free to chime in at any point, section one, superstition. So this is Calvin's thesis. He usually establishes the thesis in the very first section and first intro to it. Uh, but though experience testifies that a seed of religion is divinely sown in all, scarcely one in a hundred is found who cherishes it in his heart, and not one in whom it grows to maturity, so far is it from yielding fruit in its season. He's going to use that fruit analogy again. Moreover, while some lose themselves in superstitious observances and others of set purpose, 
wickedly revolt from God. The result is that in regard to the true knowledge of him, all are so degenerate that in no part of the world can genuine godliness be found. And so, of course, if you were following from last time, right, the sense of God that every man possesses, the sensus divinitatis, uh, the Latin term, of course, for the sense of God or sense of the divine or light of nature, as we'll see it today. Um, his thesis is that that sense of God cannot lead to true godliness. All the religious observations actually that arise from that sense are man's revolt against God and are actually idolatry, right? And this is actually what makes, and I thought his argument here was very compelling. It's what makes idolatry so offensive to God, right? That we have a sense of the true God, but we don't give homage to the true God who is so glorious, but replace him, right? Like he's given us this testimony of who he is and we replace it. So it's actually our guilt is worse than if we didn't have that sense of who he is. That's, you know, and you read Romans, I think uh, uh, we had, um, Danny talk about Romans 1, Romans 1, 21 through 23, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, right? They knew God, but they did not glorify him as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. You know how many times Calvin's going to lean on that and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. And so where Calvin is going to go, uh, as you've been tracking with him, is that in further chapters, what, what is he laying the groundwork for? That the scriptures are absolutely necessary for man to know God in two ways, in a saving way and in a way to serve him, right? In both those ways. So one of the things that maybe like the Lutherans would lean on um, would have been in a saving way. You need the scriptures. But the, the Reformed would say not just to, to be saved, but also to serve God. You need to have divine revelation. And so that leads to the word of God alone. Um, and you can see the seeds of the regulative principle of worship being laid here, which he will get to much later. All right. So then he continues on um, and starts to talk about superstition. In saying that some fall away into superstition, I mean not to insinuate that their excessive absurdity frees them from guilt. For the blindness under which they labor is almost invariably accompanied with vain pride and stubbornness. I've used this image before by Augusta Tumuch. I don't know. It's called vanity. And she's kissing herself, obviously, right? This is pride. Um, and so what, what Calvin is saying here, uh, and we need to recover that word superstition. He has a good definition a little later on is that um, every way that we seek after God that is not according to his own revelation is superstition. And though we have a sense of God due to our blindness and corruption, it does not lead us to true thoughts of God and what we owe God. And so the question is, can God be blamed for that? The answer is no, right? Falling into superstition, Calvin says, is not accidental, but it is willful. And so we're guilty. And what are the reasons he gives here for why we fall into superstition willfully? Pride and stubbornness, right? Uh, this um, goes back. Yeah. Uh, Pastor Ron, can, can you just really quick, uh, what does it mean by superstition? Because I'm thinking like how we would see it today, like being superstitious, or is it actually meaning a different type of word or term? Well, what would you say superstition is? Um, well, I remember growing up, my grandmother being Catholic, she told me whenever the door creeped open, it was Satan coming in. 
Okay. <laughs> wow. All right. Um, yeah. So the question is, right? So there's an assertion, something religious. Um, what is the basis for that? Not not having any knowledge of scripture for one. That's right. And so that's superstition. Um, ah, that's, thank you. That's the basic you. idea of superstition is describing religious, especially um, or spiritual, I suppose, in a broader sense, uh, spiritual significance to something that has no basis from God. And that's why that word needs to be sort of reclaimed is because there's superstition all over the place, right? Uh, the Roman Catholic Church is a great example of that. You know, pretty much everything they do in worship is superstitious. So um, good question. And, and uh, Calvin will also speak about that just a little bit. Um, so I'll get to a bit more on, on definitions there. But uh, um, pride and stubbornness, right? This goes back to uh, back to the very first chapter, right? Knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves, right? Um, what does that do to our pride if you had true knowledge of God and true knowledge of ourselves, right? It would humble ourselves, right? Uh, that's what we established very early on when we began. And so, you know, he's just building on all these, these building blocks, right? To have a God who is high, holy, transcendent, right? Coupled with who we are, dust, just as creatures, but sinners on top of that, that would destroy our pride and vanity, right? Um, you know, there's, here's just a personal anecdote one day at the square. I don't know if any of you were there. I think maybe Andrew Silva was, but, um, you know, I was, uh, uh, there was a family, uh, looked like they're relatively new to the United States. So, you know, maybe an Eastern religion and they were kind of curious about everything. And I said, would you like a Bible? Uh, this is God's revelation of himself and you can know more about the true God. And they said, oh, no, we believe this, this, and the other thing, right? We don't need the Bible, right? That, that's man's stubbornness, and that's man's pride. Like, I'm, I'm good. I know God, right? I believe God is like this. How many times somebody tells you that, right? I believe God is like this, and God is like that. I, may, uh, I remember, too, that the little girl seemed to be oh, really yeah. interested. Okay. Yeah. Like, she was, like, staring at, I think, you or, or uh, Elder Silva, and that's when you were like, would you like a Bible or a mm. gospel tract? And, and you were trying to uh, engage with that woman, but she was very stubborn. Yeah, it was that, just stubbornness. Wasn't yeah, it? She was basically dragging her kid away because it looked like her kid was trying mm -hmm. to uh, know what it was we were doing. But, you know, that the mom or whoever she was will have to answer for that one day. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And so there's no innocence here. This is what he's trying to say. You know, it's our own stubbornness. It's our own vanity. It's our own pride that keeps us from submitting to the will of God. <clears throat> mingled vanity and pride appear in this, in that when miserable men do seek after God, instead of ascending higher than themselves as they ought to, so here's where pride is, right? They measure him by their own carnal stupidity and neglecting solid inquiry, fly off to indulge their curiosity and vain speculation. Hence, they do not conceive of him in the character in which he is manifested, but imagine him to be whatever their own rashness has devised, right? And so this is actually our problem, right? Our thoughts don't ascend high enough to God, right? Uh, he's too glorious for our imagination. And we don't go to the place where we can inquire of God, right? Which is what? what? Where can we inquire of God? His word, right? Um, you know, you think about the word, the way it, uh, it, it speaks of him, a consuming fire, right? And these things that we are... Uh, too prideful to consider that God is as grand and as high as he truly is. 
<laughs> and of course, Calvin, you could never accuse him of being politically correct. He's also saying we're just stupid, right? <laughs> Our carnal stupidity, right? Um, not only are we prideful, but man is stupid. Have you ever thought of what a terrible combination that is? To be prideful. You've probably known people who exemplify that, right? Not only are they prideful, but they're really stupid. And, and that is about the worst combination, right? And, and that's what we are naturally, though, right? We're too proud to admit we're stupid, first of all, right? Every man thinks that their intellect is sufficient to reach to the Almighty, right? That I can, I can grapple with who God is on my own. That's pride. And we're not um, mindful enough that our knowledge is limited. Like this is where you look at the so-called great, great atheists, right? They think that they can reason away God, right? That's just stupidity though, right? They don't want to admit that man is stupid. Man is foolish. And so um, we make him out to be whatever we would make him to be. This abyss standing open, just vivid imagery there. They cannot move one footstep without rushing headlong to destruction. With such an idea of God, nothing which they may attempt to offer in the way of worship or obedience can have any value in his sight because it is not him they worship, but instead of him, the dream and figment of their own heart. And of course, uh, you know, you got the lucky rabbit's foot over there. That's just what a lot of people think about superstition, though. Now I'm going to start thinking about creaking doors and Satan walking <laughs> in. Uh, this is what I thought of with superstition. But um, this is a, a word we often neglect in, in the church, even in reformed churches today. Right. You need to recover it because superstition. I think this is a good uh, word here. It's any worship or obedience that we offer that is the dream and figment of our own heart. Right. Nothing we offer to God has any value to him if it is the figment of our own heart. Right. Uh, I think that's a wonderful way of looking at superstition. Uh, and it does speak of our very low thoughts of God. All right. This corrupt procedure is admirably described by Paul when he says that thinking to be wise, they became fools. He had previously said that they became vain in their imaginations. But lest any should suppose them blameless, he afterwards adds that they were deservedly blinded because not contented with sober inquiry, because arrogating to themselves more than they have any title to do, they of their own accord court darkness, nay, bewitch themselves with perverse, empty show. Hence it is that their folly, the result not only of vain curiosity, but of licentious desire and overweening confidence in the pursuit of forbidden knowledge cannot be excused. Now, this is, we've kind of talked about this already, so I won't spend a lot of time here, but God gives us up, right? In Romans 126, God gives us up um, to our iniquities because of our blindness. This is actually, you know, a lot of people have this uh, weird notion of Calvinism, but here's Calvin, right? Saying that we deserve to be blinded because of our impenitent hearts, right? That the root of it is our own uh, impenitence, and then God hands us over to it, um, and that's essentially the way Romans is is set up. Well, there's a lot more, so I'm going to breeze through this. Uh, anything else on section one that you wanted to talk about? Uh, I thought it was kind of interesting towards the end where you talk about forbidden knowledge that can yes. be excused. <clears throat> uh, I mean, there's, and I think you touched on this a little bit more. I can't remember if it's point three or point four. Uh, it's in my notes, but uh, he touches on this a little bit more, but um, we see every day those, those people that are superstitious in their worship are more uh, 
consistent in seeking what they could consider like forbidden knowledge, like the Gnostics, mm. uh, than actually seeking what God has truly revealed in his word. Yes. Because uh, they, I don't know if they just figure it's because like, oh, well, I can just read it on a paper, but I want to know what God has out there for me that I can obtain if I just strive hard enough or whatever. And it's kind of where uh, men also, maybe like also in the reform world, get their heads puffed up with knowledge because they're seeking after more and more of that, that knowledge because they think mm. that's their their claim to salvation, essentially. They may not say it out loud, but it's like practical atheism. Like if I don't know enough, then uh, which it's it's a good thing that turns bad, right? Like if I don't know enough, then I cannot worship God accordingly or, but. Yeah, yeah, you know, there's always that prying into the secret things, right? You know, what text is that? Anybody remember? Uh, Deuteronomy uh -huh. 30, 29, 29. 29. It's actually easy because it's 29, 29. Yeah, but yeah, yeah you know, the, the secret <laughs> things belong to God, right? The revealed <laughs> things belong to us and our children that we do them. And our children. Yeah. For the Baptists. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. So that's that's really, but the reason God has to say that is because of what Calvin's saying here is that the natural bent of the fallen heart is to pry into things that are secret things rather than the things that are revealed, right? Like, you know, a lot of those people and you know, there are various groups like that. Um, you know, there's all this and they don't want that, but they want to go and pry into strange things. So, I know Calvin is building up to you know the, the word of God being alone sufficient yeah. and, and and what we should be satisfied with. And, and I think that it's helpful that he's gonna contrast it with uh the vain curiosity and speculation. And then uh he again says it just a few sentences later, where uh uh you know, as a result not only of their vain curiosity, but their licentious desire. And overweening confidence, mm, like yeah, yeah, excessiveness. Yeah. And while when Danny asked for a definition of superstition, I went to the Webster's 828. 1828. 1828, yeah. And um, in the Latin, it's just super and states the, the word um, for the rest of it, stand to like, so stand on, like super stand or stand on excess is mm. how you could word it. And it's like you're standing on nothing of the truth, but all of this excess. And that's what you're basing everything mm -hmm. off of. And, and I like that uh, just in the sense of get, regaining the word. Yeah. Is, you know, the, even the, the mantra of the, if you will, uh, the Reformation, um, or the battle cry rather, um, is like the word of God alone. Yeah. So scriptura. Very good. All right. Suppression of the light of nature. Uh, expression of David, Psalm 14, Psalm 53. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God, is primarily applied to those who, as will shortly farther appear, stifle the light of nature and intentionally stupefy themselves. <laughs> so wonderful. Uh, we see many after they have become hardened in a daring course of sin, madly banishing all remembrance of God, though spontaneously suggested to them from within by natural sense. And so what he's going to say, what he does say here is that we intentionally stifle the light of nature. We are actively doing it um, because of what? Our soul's love of sin, right? We become hardened. This is what we talked about a seared conscience earlier. Um, not today, but another time. Um, they become hardened in a daring course of sin. And we seek to displace the true God by a God that uh, we that will serve us and cater to our sinfulness. 
uh, even with the thought, right? There's sometimes this thought that we can be good ourselves and that's in ourselves stifling the light of nature. And um, they, yeah. They, 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 they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's right. That's right. Um, so I guess some questions that I think are helpful to, to ask um, and see what we um, know of these things. You know, Calvin uses that expression, light of nature. Um, that's a reformed phrase. And um, what is it that he means by light of nature? Couple it maybe with what he's already taught in the prior chapter. Like natural. Yeah. That like last time we talked about the conscience, right? This is the census divinitatis, which is the sense of God that every man has. That's the light of nature. Um, it's equated with what he had taught us in the last chapter. Uh, larger catechism question two, right? How doth it appear there is a God? Uh, the very light of nature in man and the works of God. So these are separated things that sometimes people collapse them, but the light of nature in man and the works of God declare plainly there is a God, but his word and spirit only do sufficiently and effectually reveal him unto men for their salvation. And so the light of nature is that inner, inner sense that we all have. Uh, we talked about it almost like a sixth sense last time. What's that? On, on our hearts. That's right. Very good. So then if that's the light of nature, what is natural revelation? Like the photo of the cosmos, you know, okay. people can just look up at, at creation and know there's a God because if there's creation, there has to be a creator. Right. That's right. just, you know, sensible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's, uh, uh, that's Paul's argument as well in Romans, right? Um, so that's natural revelation. So God reveals himself like in Psalm 19, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. Um, you have natural revelation. So through the works of creation and providence, uh, you can know because he sends the rain, right? On the just and the unjust and, and so on. So you have natural revelation. And so then next, uh, and this might be a little bit more tricky. What is natural theology? Uh, knowledge of God based on observed facts and experience apart from divine revelation. Okay. Yeah. So... Right. So you take the light of nature and you take natural revelation together and you can um, have a natural theology. Right. Um, and this is I was talking to Warren about this. This is actually the fountain of the world's philosophies. Right. Because they take natural revelation and they take the light of nature and then they create a system. Right. So I guess the, the question is, what are the uses, the proper uses and improper uses of natural revelation and natural theology and what might be their limitations. Like in Romans one where Paul says that these things are revealed in nature so that uh, they, man has a natural, that man sees the natural revelation um, because God has put there to reveal himself. And then he under, understands certain things like his power, eternality, mm. Godhead, the reign of the just and the unjust tells you that he's good. Mm. Um, and so these are all, again, just more witnesses to who God is and how high he is and how low we are, how he is to be worthy, how he's worthy to be worshipped and glorified. And so a condemnation is all the worst. Okay. We don't 
Right. Um, that's, that's, yeah, that's very good. Um, so that's what it can teach us. Uh, what are the problems with natural theology for the natural man? We can't base our salvation. Yeah. It's insufficient to save us. It only, it, only it only condemns. Yeah. Very good. Um, you're better off without it. Yeah, that's actually interesting, isn't it? Because uh, it leaves you without excuse. Yeah. Right. Um, I, yeah, I think so. Um, that's that's yeah, that's exactly the the, the point. Um, what's the other problem with natural theology? Like natural theology can actually tell, teach you all of those things that that you you guys have talked about. But what's the problem with natural theology for a fallen man? They think it's sufficient enough to to save, and it leads them to false gods and idols because they would rather make a god in their own image it's kind of like even now we see it today with superheroes are the new uh, thing because everybody wants like a super power them that's right. why the big thing is like people are pushing for you know a black superhero hispanic superhero whatever uh because they want someone who resembles them being uh in like a contributed with i guess divine attributes mm. um which just goes back to the old pantheons right exactly yeah yeah in fact sometimes they are the same gods yeah <laughs> What's that? They worship the creation rather than the creator. That's right. Um, yeah. And so, you know, one of the major problems with natural theology is that um, man is corrupt, right? And so he cannot even interpret natural theology correctly, right? You know, he, he sees the power of God in creating the galaxies. And what does he do? He worships the galaxy, right? You know, he doesn't have his thoughts, again, go high enough. That goes back to Psalm 113. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and that was his argument, even in the last chapter, when he talked about why is it that you can have cult leaders, essentially, it's because of the sense of God in every man, they wouldn't be successful, if we didn't have a sense that we have a God, right? Uh, the problem is they point you in the wrong direction. But that's why cults are successful, because we all have the light of nature that testifies that there is a God. So I think when you put all these things together, right, it, it, it has great explanatory power, right, for everything that you see in the world. Um, Richard Muller uh, does have a lot here on natural revelation and natural theology. Um, I might want to just leave that in the slide deck, though. I think we've talked about uh, a lot of these things. I just have the highlighted part here at the end. So this is post-Reformation Reformed Dogmatics, um, volume one. Uh, it talks about natural theology quite a bit and Calvin's thoughts on natural theology. He says at the end, the problem is that sins, uh, that sin distorts perception and superstition undermines all right knowledge. And um, so, you know, the controversy is always of whether Calvin um, uses the term natural theology. He doesn't do that. However, you can see the flow of argument has uh, a lot of the thought of natural theology there never in a positive direction, of course. Um, Barthians, of course, have tried to deny natural theology, um, but all Calvin does is declare such theology useless to salvation. Uh, Calvin, in fact, consistently assumes the existence of false pagan natural theology that has warped the knowledge of God available in nature into gross idolatry. Calvin must argue in this way because he assumes the existence of natural the uh, revelation, which is in say, in, uh, is a true knowledge of God. Uh, if natural theology were impossible, this is a wonderful, wonderful um, uh, bit of truth. Uh, idolatrous man would not be left without excuse. 
if natural theology were not, I think one of you mentioned it as well. The problem is that sin takes the natural revelation of God and fashions, in fact, an idolatrous and sinful theology. The theology exists and man is to blame because it is sin and sin alone that stands in the way of a valid natural theology, right? Like if sin didn't distort what God is screaming at us in the creation and providence, right, then we would actually know that there is a God that transcends the, the creation and we wouldn't bow down to the creation. We wouldn't bow down to the creation rather than the creator. And we would know that the creator, right, is to be worshiped. And so natural theology is the very basis on which God is going to judge men for not knowing him as he is, is that your sin did not ever cause you to have higher thoughts of who I would be. I love that you point out that assumes the existence yes. of natural which is uh, a true knowledge. A of true God. knowledge That's of God. So vital because, yeah. Uh, no natural revelation, no natural theology. Yeah. We, we what, what, you know, what basis would be judged on because we wouldn't err in that way. That's but right. We do, then but we do err. We, so we do err, therefore, therefore we're, we're, we're condemned. Yeah, exactly right. It's very, very logical. Yeah, yeah. So that's where, again, you know, what is the basis of the judgment, right? It's because man should know God, yeah. but our sin has made it so that we will not acknowledge God as God, and right? And we won't worship him. So, exactly. So you can see, and I, I think Danny had mentioned this, you can see Romans 1 and 2 just all throughout yeah. uh, this thinking. Um, but it's developed very pointedly here in Calvin. Um, Calvin therefore testifies not only to the existence of natural revelation and to the fact of pagan idolatrous natural theology, but to the real possibility of a natural theology of the regenerate. And I'll just pause and say what you men were doing um, was natural theology according to the regenerate, mm -hmm. which is you're taking the scripture and you're interpreting, you're interpreting the natural theology that is available to us. He also um, appears to, oops, he also appears to have a sense that humanity in general, apart from the issue of sin and regeneration, does have enough logical and rational apparatus to develop some valid teachings concerning God, creation, and providence from examination of the natural order. Yet there is a double problem with natural theology. First, such theology is not saving. It exists as, and I thought this was a keen insight, exists as praise rather than as proclamation. Second, it is not dependable in its religious results and contains errors concerning God and his work that can only be corrected through the use of scripture. Here again, the problem of natural theology reflects the problem of the Imago Dei. It is not utterly lost, but it provides no basis for man's movement towards God. Uh, just very well said, I think. You know, we have enough faculties to develop valid teachings concerning God from observation, but the corruption of the image of God in us creates two problems, right? Natural theology cannot save, and it's not dependable. And so scripture has to correct natural theology. Now, I think Aquinas, but certainly the other papists, many other papists have said natural theology can save. Um, the Socinians and, the Ar and some of the Arminians, I think, it's definitely the Pelagians, would say that as well, that natural theology can actually be salvific. And Turretin deals with that in his Institutes of Elenctic Theology. On the other hand, uh, the Orthodox constantly maintain that the theology or true religion by which salvation can come to man after the fall is only one, that revealed in the word of the law and gospel, and that all other religions except this one are either impious and idolatrous or false and erroneous. 
although retaining some obscure and imperfect notions of the law and that which may be known of God, yet these false and erroneous religions are of no further use than to render man inexcusable. So you can, you can see that there in Romans. The question is not, are the certain first principles of religion common to all men? For we grant that in natural theology, by the light of nature, some such do exist upon which supernatural theology is built. And supernatural theology, of course, being out of the word. For example, that there is a God that he must be worshipped, etc. Rather, the question is, are first principles adequate and proper to true religion held among all? This we deny. Yes, that's right. And how, like, Puritan, how much would he know of other religions in his day? Yeah, quite a bit. Quite a bit. You'd see them talk about the Mohammedans. You'd see them talk about uh, um, even the, the Hindus and, and so on. Yeah, so they, they had knowledge of, like, in-depth knowledge of those religions in Europe. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. 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 So. Greeks. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking more, like, religions that were still in practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they, they definitely did. Um, they had a, a fair sense, and there was a, definitely a lot more curiosity probably back then than there is today as well. Um, so yeah, a good question though. And um, I was talking to Warren about this before the study, but you see Calvin's thought all throughout our, 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 our standards. Uh, Confession of Faith, chapter 1.1. Although the light of nature, and the, so this is about, what's chapter one about? Scripture. Scripture. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence so, uh, do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God, that's what Romans says, as to leave men inexcusable. See, that's that same idea. Natural theology through the light of nature renders man inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. And then, so there are two aspects of it that the confession really brings out. And this is just straight out of Calvin. Chapter 21, which is, what, what chapter is is that what does that deal with? Confession. Uh, yeah. Oh. If you're going to read it, it's worship. I'm reading it. Yeah, it's worship. <laughs> uh, so worship. The light of nature, show it that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and doeth good unto all. So you can see uh, very similar. And is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart, with all the soul, and with all the might. Right. So natural theology can kind of kill you that. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited to his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. So our confession shows us two areas, and this comes out of Calvin's thought, that um, the light of nature cannot teach us saving knowledge and it cannot teach us how to serve god acceptably right and those are two very important tenets of true religion and you know um a lot of churches uh, a lot of traditions might even get the first part right but the second part is also supremely vital and calvin is is key in really clarifying that and you'll see that as he goes on not just in this chapter but as he approaches worship so now coming back to calvin from uh, Muller and so on, uh, to show how detestable this madness is, the psalmist introduces them as distinctly denying that there is a God, because although they do not disown his essence, they rob him of his justice and providence, 
Those are two very key things I'll talk about in a moment. And represent him as sitting idly in heaven. Nothing being less accordant with the nature of God than to cast off the government of the world, leaving it to chance, and so to wink at the crimes of men that they may wanton with impunity and evil courses, it follows that every man who indulges in security after extinguishing all fear of divine uh, judgment virtually denies there is a God. Now, I I thought this is a fascinating argument, and it makes sense. Uh, Deism, of course, virtually denies there is a God. It denies what God could and must be, really. Um, When you deny that God is just, you deny God. And I think that's really wonderful. Like, for instance, uh, somebody have Psalm 53. Can you read the first two verses? If you can pull it up. Uh, Just the first two verses. Give ear to my... Oh, 53. Uh, The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Corrupt are they and have done abominable iniquity. There is none that doeth good. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand that did seek God. Okay. So what is it? So fool says in uh, in his heart, there is no God. But what is it that they do? They do sin, right? So when he says there is no God, he basically says, in effect, God will not see. You can hear that in the scriptures and other places, right? It, It denies that God is when you say God is not just. Right? And God will not judge. And that denies that God is sovereign. And that is to deny that there is a God, no matter what you say. Right. Uh, if you say that uh, um, God is not going to judge, God accepts all things and doesn't care about iniquity, then you deny God because it's of the essence of God that he is just. Um, and when you say that he does not uh, manage the affairs of providence, right, and just sits idly in heaven, that's not in accordance with the nature of God, that he would create and cast off the government of the world, leaving it to chance. And he says, these things are virtual atheism. Interesting, they shoot themselves in the foot, especially with the justice of God, because go up to an atheist and tell them they're going to take their wallet. That's right. That's the (laughs) sprawl. There's no, like, uh, they will always deny the subjective or not subjective, but objective, objective. Mor- morality. Yeah. And then when you try to take the wall, you're like, oh, no, that's unfair. It's like, oh, well, you just said that morality is subjective. It's okay for me. Right. So it should be good, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I thought it was kind of interesting. I heard someone uh, kind of talk about that, that point there, like uh, Calvin, basically, because a lot of people will uh, say that those two uh, verses, when it talks about the fool said the heart there's no God, uh, is specifically only ever applicable towards the atheist. But it's also no. not towards the practical atheist. Yeah, that's right. And that's where a lot of people misunderstand uh, that idea. And a lot of people kind of, well, this is maybe reaching towards speculation, but a lot of people uh, think that even in those times, there was no such thing as like a modern atheist that would just full on deny that there is any denied, yeah. or not denied, any divine being. Mm. So uh, <clears throat> it's always interesting to kind of see that like within the, the context to kind of even what Calvin's saying here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so God makes their hearts dull as a just punishment. Um, when he says elsewhere, so Psalm 36 verse one, um, maybe you can read that as well. If you're not, uh, too far from there. Yeah. 
The transgression of the wicked saith within my heart that there is no fear of God before his eyes. Yeah, and then you can see he devises mischief and so on and so forth, right? Um, and so this is uh, this is the 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 thing what God has forgotten. He's hided his face. He will not see, right? They're suppressing uh, even that light of nature that uh, that they should have. That God is just. And uh, this is what their conscience, remember we saw that last week, testifies to. And they're suppressing that nature uh, that God has given them. Um, and so those who feign to themselves, uh, first Paul says, if we believe not, he abideth faithfully, cannot deny himself. Uh, so those who feign to themselves a dead and dumb idol are truly said to deny God. Yeah, it's like Calvin is looking at the, the would-be atheist and sort of chiding him even more than the blatant idolater. And he's like, at least they have sense enough. You are completely absurd. Mm. Um, I, I kind of feel like that's reading the second portion. I I really maybe enjoyed it the most because it just shows how absurd the atheist yeah. is and yeah. how, you know, how foolish their denial of God is. That's right. Um, so it is moreover to be observed that though they would struggle with their own convictions and would fain not only banish God from their minds, but from heaven also, right? It's almost deicide, right? It's, it's sort of the, uh, the, the fallen man wants to kill God. Now, how can you prove that from the Bible? They killed Christ, right? Yeah, we killed Christ. Yeah, we killed Christ. And so this is this is the idea, right? We would not only want to banish God from their minds, from our minds, but from heaven also. Their stupefaction is never so complete as to secure them from being occasionally dragged before the divine tribunal. We'll get to that. I'll ask a question on that. Still, as no fear restrains them from rushing violently in the face of God, so long as they're hurried on by that blind impulse, it cannot be denied that their prevailing state of mind in regard to him is brutish oblivion. Now, he says that men are occasionally dragged before the divine tribunal, and he means that before death. What does he mean by that? When are men occasionally brought before the divine tribunal? In uh, various forms of, of judgment. Uh, okay. Fear of death. Fear of death, judgment. Um, I think last time we looked at Romans 2.15 as well, right? We talked about some of those things, but especially their conscience mm -hmm. accusing or excusing them, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, the work of the law being uh, written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness in their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing them, right? Like that's God's divine tribunal. That's his testimony that he judges man. I also find... A lot of arguments that atheists make, like Richard Dawkins, if you listen to his interviews, it's not like a lot of times they resort to not, you know, arguing whether there is a God, but rather attacks on God. Mm. Oh, why would you worship a God that does X, Y, and Z? Uh, do this for that does this to kids and serving kids in Africa. It's almost like they are acknowledging his existence. Uh, they just. Um, they don't, they, they don't, yeah, yeah they don't that's right. His, they don't like his, him. His, his kingship, you know? Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. Can, can you also say that being dragged before the divine tribunal could be hearing the gospel and rejecting it? Yeah, though, I think he's speaking very broadly, even to those who don't ever hear the word of God, right? Okay. So broader than just uh, hearing the gospel and rejecting it. 
Um, he's still talking about sort of natural man at this point. All right, this is a very helpful section, zeal insufficient. In this way, the vain pretext which many employ to clothe their superstition is overthrown. They deem it enough that they have some kind of zeal for religion, how preposterous soever it may be, not observing that true religion must be conformable to the will of God as its unerring standard, that he can never deny himself and is no spectra or phantom to be metamorphosed at each individual's caprice. Now, this is a picture. What do you, do you guys know where? I was just going to say, I was, I'm really dumb. I guess I don't know what that is. Oh, okay. No, you're not dumb. Um, that's uh, Mecca. That's the Kaaba. I've never seen it before. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so this pilgrimage, how zealous Muslims are, you know, yes. to go and bow down before um, their stone. Road off in the distance on his unicorn? <laughs> or a Pegasus, that's what it was. Uh, maybe. <laughs> but... Um, Probably not in reality, but um, what were they? Th this like, is where they put the stone yeah. that they, they bow down to. But yeah, they could be. I'm it's, not as well versed. It's, it's uh, I love our profession because it, it, these words apply to so much. It's against common sense and, and reason. reason. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, <laughs> you were supposed to make a t shirt like that for us. <laughs> it's repugnant to common sense and reason, also. Uh, but so, you know, you think of how zealous, you know, the Muslim world is, right? But is it of any value to God? No, because zeal must be conformable to the will of God and the truth of God's uh, inerrant standard. And Romans 10.2 is really wonderful here. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Now, what really should sober all of us up is who is Paul talking about? The Jews, right? The Jews. And they had the very oracles of God, right? And that's a warning to us that we can possess the scripture, but ignore what it has to say. We can be very zealous and say we're Christians, but we can ignore, uh, we can have a zeal for God, of God, but not according to knowledge. The words of Christ, uh, you uh, search the scriptures. Mm. Uh, These are uh, testifiable. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he doesn't pull any punches here. He says this mocks God. It's easy to see how superstition with its false glosses mocks God while it tries to please him. I thought that was just what a wonderful way of saying that, right? Usually fastening merely on things on which he has declared he sets no value. It either contemptuously overlooks or even undisguisedly rejects the things which he expressly enjoins or in which we are assured that he takes pleasure. Uh, you, we could probably just sit and meditate on this for, <laughs> forever, right? I mean, it's just such a wonderful way of, of expressing it, right? Um, we reject the things he expressly enjoins and replaces it with the things we are assured that he takes pleasure in. Contemptuously overlooks. Yes, contemptuously, right? This is, again, goes back to his thesis. This, is, this has to be sinful arrogance and pride. And what else would do it, right? Um, God must accept it because I say so. That mocks God, right? That God is not mocked. We have to be humbled before God. But that's what I think is so helpful. You know, we need to reclaim this idea that superstition mocks God while it says it tries to please him. I think if we would just remember that, right, that anything that we do or we offer to God that he has not said, thus saith the Lord, it actually mm -hmm. mocks him. 
this sounds like a lot of churches today, Pastor, sadly, that they will probably fall under this more than, I guess, non-believers. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it goes to both, right? You know, you have over here, uh, you have the Muslims, right? They, they're very zealous and they say God accepts these things, right? But it's mocking God, even though they, you know, in their mind, in some way, they are saying we are trying to please God. We're trying to submit to God, but it's doing it on their terms and not God's terms. And so uh, that's idolatry. I mean, that's essentially, you know, almost the definition of idolatry there. Um, so these are things, sobering things to think about. Those, therefore, who set up a fictitious worship merely worship and adore their own delirious fancies. Indeed, they would never dare so to trifle with God had they not previously fashioned him after their own childish conceits. Hence, that vague and wandering opinion of deity is declared by an apostle to be ignorance of God. Howbeit then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them, which by nature are no gods. And he elsewhere declares that the Ephesians were without God at the time when they wandered without any correct knowledge of him. It makes little difference, at least in this respect, whether you hold the existence of one God, we were talking about this earlier, or a plurality of gods, since in both cases alike, by departing from the true God, you have nothing left but an <laughs> execrable idol. It remains, therefore, to conclude with Lactantius, uh, no religion is genuine, which is not in accordance with truth. So really, you know, don't boast that you're mono monotheists, right? It doesn't matter if you have one God or a thousand, right? If it's not in accordance with the truth, it's a departing from the true God. You have nothing but an idol, right? No religion is genuine. And so he's a Christian apologist. Uh, no religion is genuine that is not in accordance with truth. Um, this even goes to the nature of Jesus Christ himself, right? He said, I am the way and the truth and the life, right? So Christ himself is the truth. Our religion is defined as truth and uh, truth is important to the Christian. With the portion of the execrable idol, I think too, of like uh, the golden calf. Mm -hmm. When mm -hmm. God makes me eat it. it <laughs> yeah, that yeah that's exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They can see what, what it really is. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Anything else on section three? And we'll try to conclude section four quickly. Like this one, it's the shortest one. <laughs> but yeah, it, it is. Because yeah. this, I think, is the one that most applies to us. Mm. Servile fear is irreverence. To this fault, they add a second, uh, when they do think of God as is against their will, never approaching him without being dragged into his presence. And when there, instead of the voluntary fear flowing from reverence of the divine majesty, feeling only that forced and servile fear, which divine judgment extorts judgment, which from the impossibility of escape, they are compelled to dread, but which while they dread, they at the same time also hate, um, let me just stop there because I think the rest of that is just an explanation of that. Um, he says that servile fear is uh, irreverence instead of voluntary fear. So can anybody explain what he has, what he means by that? I think a good example is like the, uh, you know, uh, like the professing Christian that only 
their religion is no more than an hour on Sundays. And the rest of the week, they are, uh, you know, living worldly and they're not praying, they're not reading a word, they're not submitting to the will of God. And so when they come to church, they come to church with that, that fear of like they're a servant. And it's when they have, they start to dread going to church. They start to hate church. They hate God. They hate the people there because they're coming in a, in a sense of uh, really like dreading to be there. And it's a fear that you are being judged. And I think that's where a lot of people will start to say, like, I don't go to church because of all the hypocrites. Uh, but when you are living in a form of reverence and uh, voluntary fear, that's the Christian that uh, every day lives according to God's wording, at least tries to live according to God's wording, God's will. They exercise, you know, um, the means of grace and things of that nature. They pray, they read the word. Um, they're there at the table when it's when it's available. Um, they're seeking God with their whole heart. Okay. Yeah, I think that's that's helpful. Um, you know, that sort of sense of kind of being dragged to church, you know, because mm-hmm. you, you have, a, what's that? To assuage slavish. your, slavish. Yeah, okay. To yeah. slavish, right? That slavish fear. Like, I, I need to to serve God. But. Sort of harkens back to the earlier chapters where he talks about like piety and religion. Mm-hmm. And the piety is going to be. Uh, mission of love and reverence that's that's exactly right and seek after God yes. humbly that's right um you know it actually is meant to be a sense of adoration for God that he is just right like the fact that he is just is not meant to make us quake the Christian the one who loves God but actually you adore him because he's just right like his justice is actually an aspect of our praise and of course, when you know him in Christ, right, you praise God that he judged, right, Christ so that he can be just and the justifier, the one that has faith in Christ. Um, you know, here's a way to look at it, right? The Christian says, if God sent me to hell, I would still be obliged to adore him. And the fact that the denizens of hell don't adore him is why hell is forever, right? They have no desire to serve him, there right? Hell yeah, what's that? I'm like no earlier portion where he says there's if there was no hell at all, yeah, you would still that's right fear and love. You would still fear God. and love and serve God. That's right. Um, so yeah. I, I'm just in my mind, this is it goes back to the superstition also, because I'm thinking of, of certain people that I know. And mm. when I was an unbeliever, um, I would say that the people who were trying to get me to go to church, it was this uh survive fear okay they went to church so that they wouldn't go to hell mm. and they did certain things um and they did them because they were afraid if they didn't they'd be punished for yes kind of like if you, you you knock on wood not because you love the spirit that's somehow commanded you to do that but because if you don't they will punish you yes a bad thing will happen it's so excellent they would try to get me to go there so mm. that bad things wouldn't happen Okay. Yeah, so that's that's that's, I... that's great. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's wonderful. Um, I think that's a great connection here. Um, anything else on that? So this is, I think, what you're you're talking about. There's a recourse to some species of religious observance. Um, and never ceasing, uh, meanwhile, to defile themselves with every kind of vice and add crime to crime, 
until they have broken the holy law of God and every one of its requirements and set his whole righteousness at naught. At all events, they are not so restrained by their semblance of fear as um, not to luxuriate and take pleasure in iniquity, choosing rather to indulge their carnal propensities than to curb them with the bridle of the Holy Spirit. But since this shadow of religion, it scarcely even deserves to be called a shadow is false and vain, it is easy to infer how much this confused knowledge of God differs from that piety which is instilled into the breasts of believers and from which alone true religion uh, springs. And uh, so this, again, goes to some of the themes that you guys were, you all were talking about. And yet hypocrites would fain, by means of torturous windings, make a show of being very near to God at the very time they are fleeing from him. Uh, the contrasts that Calvin draws are, are so wonderful, right? They, <laughs> they make a show of being near to God at the very time they are fleeing from him. For while the whole life ought to be one of perpetual course of obedience, they were uh, rebel without fear in almost all their actions and seek to appease him with a few paltry sacrifices while they ought to serve him with integrity of heart and holiness of life. They endeavor to procure his favor by means of frivolous devices and punctilios of no value, right? We try to appease our conscience, right? That light of nature comes back to that uh, with all the rituals we make instead of integrity of heart and holiness of life, right? the Lord speaks on these things, right? Uh, obedience is better than sacrifice. And even the sacrifices that he's ordained, right? And those aren't like crazy sacrifices like that. He's even talking about the sacrifices that he's ordained, right? Um, in other words, we seek to flee from our obligations to God by inventing things to try to stifle the light of nature, right? And that's hypocrisy. Um, makes a show of being near to God at the very time they are fleeing from him. Like all the stuff that the papacy does, right? It makes a show, a grand show of being really close to God and having this element of reverence and, 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 and worship. But you ask, where did God ask for any of those things, right? But it's just to appease our conscience so that you can go and do, live uh, like a heathen the rest of uh, your days and not actually have an interest in true holiness. What about the Catholics who, who do those practices, but also don't live like what I would, but but a lot of us would see as heathens. They mm. try and actually live holy lives. Yeah, I know Catholics who are like that. Yeah, well, that that comes to a, a gospel issue too, right? You know, so we're, we're, there's multiple elements to that. One is the the rituals that have no value in God's eyes. Um, where are they finding it? Not in the Bible, right? And so those don't have any value. Uh, we're not saying that all Catholics are damned, by the way. That's yeah. that's not the, the, the idea here. But, um, you know, that you can, are you living that way sort of out of out of your salvation? Or are you living that way also? What's what's the motivation there? So that you can basically earn your way yeah, to, like to salvation. Work. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so th there's multiple dimensions here. I think he's just covering this for now because of the light of nature. And so sorry that I put the Roman, the, the pontiff there, because I think it just illustrated one aspect of this, which is that sort of idea of a few paltry sacrifices uh, to procure his favor. Um, I could have put a heathen up there and it would have just been the same idea. I think we're more familiar with this, but um, but that there's going to be gospel issues later on that directly speak to this kind of thing, right? Um, so your mind immediately goes to the Pharisees, and if we are exactly right. day 
correlation. It would be these. Would, yeah. yeah. To rebel without fear is perfect to have the antichrist of Right. Right. Turn to the law. Yeah, he's not he's not just some ordinary Catholic. That is the Pope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um okay. So just a couple more slides, I think. Um and uh nay, they take greater license in their groveling indulgences because they imagine that they can fulfill their duty to him by preposterous expiations. In short, while their confidence ought to have been fixed upon him, they put him inside and rest in themselves or the creatures, right? We often rest in ourselves. At length, they be uh, wilder themselves in such a maze of error that the darkest of ignorance obscures and ultimately extinguishes those sparks which were designed to show them the glory of God. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they they think they can fulfill their duty to him by preposterous expiations, right? Like, where did you come up with this idea that this will expiate sin, right? Uh, while their confidence ought to have been fixed upon him, right? Because again, Christ alone, they put him aside and rest in themselves or the creatures. And so what happens is uh, the darkness of ignorance obscures and ultimately extinguishes the light of nature. Um, this is what uh, you might think of a, a psalm in this, right? Uh, he's, you know, he assumes that you have a pretty good working knowledge of your Bible, I think, because he just essentially just ends up citing. Um, uh, here we go. Uh, yeah, so Psalm 115, right? Um, our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes that have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. Here's the chilling verse, right? Verse eight. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. You basically become like what you worship, essentially. They're dumb. They're, they're mute. They cannot see. They uh, cannot handle. They cannot walk. Well, you become like them. And so what's happening is the light of nature that testifies to the true God gets extinguished as you become like the idols that you serve. It's kind of the issue with preposterous creation. It's kind of mm -hmm. like Jeremiah 19.5, more like a distinction, you know, God said it never came into his mind. Mind, yeah. So yeah. Like stuff that That's we right. try to Still, the conviction that there is some deity continues to exist, the light of nature, like a plant which can never be completely eradicated, though so corrupt that it is only capable of producing the worst of fruit. So the product of this is corrupt, just like the corrupted light of nature and man. Um, 
so anyway, I thought it was kind of interesting about the searing of the conscience. We've talked about this before, but notice what it's connected to. Now, the spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. But notice what it is that is producing this, especially in this context, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them, which believe and know the truth. Right. Yeah, it it literally is. Yeah. Um, You know, the, the, what causes the conscience to be seared is these false worship practices, Mm -hmm. right. Um, Going towards the things that God has not commanded in the word is what leads to a conscience that is seared to the point where you don't respond anymore. You respond to the doctrines of devils, but you don't respond to the doctrines of God. And so that's, a, a, you know, if you've ever had to deal with people who, you know, have been sort of given over to false worship practices, it's it's something that sears them. I mean, you see that with the Roman Catholics, obviously, with literally forbidding to marry and abstaining from meats. Uh, it's really hard to bring them out of that. Uh, lies in hypocrisy and their conscience seared with a hot iron. Contrast there too uh, of them that which believe and know the truth. And know the truth. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Uh, so the reprobate cannot fully, this is a wonderful ending, I think, to the chapter. Nay, we have still stronger evidence of the proposition for which I now contend that a sense of deity is naturally engraven on the human heart in the fact that the very reprobate are forced to acknowledge it. When at their ease, they can jest about God and talk pertly and loquaciously in disparagement of his power, but should despair from any cause overtake them, it will stimulate them to seek him and dictate ejaculatory prayers, proving that they were not entirely ignorant of God, but had perversely suppressed feelings, which ought to have been earlier manifested. So even the reprobates cannot suppress the light of nature. And what's he saying uh, proves that. It's like, isn't the expression, there's no atheist? Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. Right. They uh, suppressed feelings, which ought to have been manifest. But when despair overtakes them, it will stimulate them to seek him. It's it's an instinct almost, you know. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. Okay, let him go. Let him go. Yeah. Um, and and they suppress uh, that knowledge of God. And you even see this, right, in, in, the, in the church. Sometimes a person will come into the church because they have great need. Uh, and then when the need is resolved, they're not at church anymore, right? And uh, you or can in prison. In prison, yeah. 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 Hardest mission field is is prison. Uh, Pastor, I, I think about my mom's personal testimony, and I I believe that part of her reason of her coming to church the first time around was be, because of this very thing. Um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, just the despair and and crying out, and then um, when God didn't meet it right away, she kind of turned her back. And, you know, God was gracious enough to bring her back, though. So praise God for that. Amen. Praise the Lord. Yeah, I've been encouraged to hear that she's been regular in attendance. That's really wonderful. Yeah, she she is. And she texts texts me and calls me every day. So praise God for that. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, so, you know, to your point there, God can use, right, these things to bring his elect to himself. So just some takeaways. The innate innate sense of God that all men possess can only condemn natural theology is corrupt. Man's thoughts of God's are not uh, of God are not high enough. Zeal without knowledge cannot please God. It mocks him. We must be saved according to the word and we must serve God according to the word. 
Uh, the Jews prove that even those with the scriptures can fall into this trap. Uh, where is our hope found then with all of these things that are against us? Um, well, seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, right, from the Bible, and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, but their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. So our hope is the veil is taken away by the spirit of God, Christ taking it away uh, when we hear the word of God um, read and preached, faith coming by hearing and hearing the word of God. And our sanctification, as well as our salvation, comes from thus saith the Lord. And next time around, we will go into chapter five. Uh, which we'll talk about. I won't read that whole thing. You can read it yourself about the revelation of God in creation. So, and kind of like uh, <clears throat> with the idea, uh, like point point two, uh, talking about this um, fool saying the heart there's no God. Mm. And would you say that uh, really, like the the modern thought when it comes to modern atheists is really just like their God is still in a sense it's hedonism. Because it's, you know, touch, taste, whatever pleases the flesh is. is yeah, they're materialists. Yeah. You know, that, that's all that they, they want to acknowledge, mm. right? Because um, it's all whatever pleases me, it's, it makes me feel good. Yeah, yeah. Like that. Um, you know, or reason, right, is, mm. is almost uh, the god. Um, so there's, there's lots of, lots of, I think, ways that atheists today... Can manifest just all the old philosophies yeah right i mean it's all vain philosophy yeah there's nothing new under the sun so yeah. that's the again one of the reasons that second portion I, I think i enjoyed so much is that really it kind of gives this notion gets rid of the notion of the distinction of atheists today from yes. any time in history like yeah. the same this same fool today is the same fool that's always been you know, from the time that the Lord, uh, from the, you know, from the fall, all right. that denied him uh, in that how, uh, how would put it, like in a sort of that vicious fashion of denying him. Uh, these are all the So-called. <laughs> Which still is hedonistic because it's only the scientific as long as he's the rulers of science. It's basically like a yeah, council. It, it, and it's, and it, and it is, it's, it's, it's philosophy of materialism. Yeah, it's all vicious, <laughs> a, a vicious denial of God. It's all to deny God and put the put science in God's place. Yeah, yeah. It, it's the worship of the creation again. Yeah. The creator. If it's if it's man in God's place, it's as I reasoned this right. You're essentially like saying, like, I reason this to, to understand it. So, I mean, it's like you're putting your own mind as God at that point. Mm. Finite and fallen. Uh, yeah. I like that kind of distinction. Yeah. It's not just like, or that you made in your, uh, your 
talk earlier that we're creatures of the dust, mm-hmm. but also sinners. And also sinners. Yeah, yeah we're, so we're we're prideful and stupid, right? Yeah. Is the way that Calvin kind of puts yeah, the stupidity. it. Stupidity. They yeah. stupefy themselves. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which I think is funny. Like even I'll, I'll never forget this, but like my physics teacher, uh, like in the same sentence, talked about the Big Bang, and then was talking about how we can always know that this equation will result exactly what we want for a projectile being shot out of a cannon. Yeah. Like, how can you say we're all just chance and happenstance and stardust coming into stardust? And then you say that this is how we can objectively always know this is true. Mm-hmm. The problem with these equations, this is always true until you get to physics three. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think, you know, I think what's really also helpful about Calvin is that he is, um, he doesn't just explain it, he's thought provoking, right? You know, he makes you really kind of think deeper. And he's, he has a good understanding of philosophy, right, uh, in its negative sense. And he's able to sort of make us think, I think, a little deeper than, you know, today's systematics, a lot of times, you know, they're just like cut and dry, but he really does make you kind of really uh, think through these things and of course, vivid imagery as well. You know, no systematician anymore writes the way that he does. It's potentially stupefy themselves. They're beastly. Yeah. Drawing your tin. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's just that almost, you know, like preaching. Um, so, yeah, wonderful stuff. Uh, next time, uh, I don't think we'll get through all of book, uh, chapter, book one, chapter five. So it's creation and providence. Uh, so we're going from light of nature to natural revelation. Uh, again, the case is being built. I think it's chapter six where he starts talking about the scripture um, that we are going to need the scriptures because this knowledge of God and creation and providence is insufficient as he sort of already laid out. All right. Anything else uh, in the online world? I look forward for you posting this. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. Thank you, Pastor Rom. You're welcome, Nicole. Um, what would, did you have something to say? I was saying not for Danny. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, all right. Well, why don't we do this? Why don't we pray and ask the Lord to, to bless uh, what we've studied? Our Father in heaven, we are thankful that we know God through the Holy Scripture, that you have sent your spirit into our heart, and we are We also know, and we will get there in our studies, that the scripture alone without the spirit is insufficient as well. And so we're thankful for the testimony that we are the children of God, that the Holy Spirit has given to us, that uh, the words of scripture are true. Uh, We thank you that there is a natural theology, though we as uh, sinners have corrupted uh, it. Uh, We pray that uh, you would continue to take the blindness from our hearts. We, uh, while we do... um, know that uh, all men are corrupting what they know, uh, what they could know of God. We ourselves are scarcely better. We're not for your spirit. And we still have many improper thoughts of God. And so we pray, Father, you would drive us to the scripture, that we would be humble, that we wouldn't be stubborn, that we wouldn't be proud, that we would uh, humbly seek the will of God. And when a brother or sister chastens us even out of the scripture, that we wouldn't be so haughty that we wouldn't consider if these things are so and look into the word of God ourselves. And so, Father, humble us, humble our pride, and cause us to grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, as the apostle did, see all things as dung, 
compared to that wonderful knowledge that comes out of the scripture of Christ. Bless us as we conclude our time. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, thank you all for, uh, for coming online. And uh, I'll see some of you in person soon. And others, I'll see you again on Zoom. That. And.